Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Old memories, like old songs, are the purveyors of a kind of double imagery. They're like triggers of thought that somehow short-circuit time and make yesterday's events today's reality. So when we write or read about the past, particularly in novels or memoirs, what we're reading or writing is not necessarily factual, but representative of our remembered past, almost a separate world unto itself. Expanding on these ideas and a whole lot more is my guest, Siri Husved, in her new novel, Memories of the Future. Siri Hustved is internationally recognized as one of the finest contemporary novelists. She's the author of a book of poems, six novels, four collections of essays, and a work of nonfiction. It is my pleasure to welcome Siri Hustved here to talk about Memories of the Future. Siri, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for that very good, sharp uh, introduction to the problems of memory. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And it really makes me, even though this is not a political novel per se, you can't help but think about this fascination that's out there today about people remembering the past differently, remembering it somehow as something more idyllic than it really was. Talk a little about that. (laughs) Yes, I think this this may be uh, a human impulse uh, to idealize the past and probably it's emotionally driven you know that that people are clinging to moments in the past that were um, understood as you know beautiful in some way but in order to do that I think often there's a distortion of the reality you know I don't think that there that that there really is a paradise lost I guess part of it is that we've survived it somehow. We've gotten through that past, and that that gives it a kind of cloak of comfort in some ways. Yes, and I think you're probably referring to idealized versions that part of the American population has about, say, the 1950s, you know, when men were men and... And, and women knew their place, and um, Jim Crow was uh, uh, very much uh, in the picture. And I think that it's really pretty silly to uh, think about that time as somehow better than what we're uh, going through now. Talk a little bit about the time that, that this novel, that Memories of the Future starts, this, this t- period of time in the 70s in New York. Yes. Talk about that. Well, um, I did, in fact, um, move to New York City in 1978, just as the narrator of this novel does. Um, I had never lived in New York City. I, I had only visited it once. I came from Minnesota, where I had grown up almost exclusively with a few years in Norway because my mother is Norwegian. Um, That New York was really very different from New York today. Uh, The city had gotten through a financial crisis but had lost almost a million people to it. It was um, a far more dilapidated and dangerous city than it is today. And Talk a little bit about how you began this, finding this, this old novel that, 
uh, you had worked on back then? You know what? It's not true. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, this really is a novel. Even though I have taken some autobiographical details, um, I knew very clearly when I embarked on this book that I was playing with the genre of memoir and people's hunger for uh, the real story and then asking what does the real story mean? In fact, I published an essay um, on this very subject. You know, what is memory and what is fiction? How do we separate the two? Uh, what are we really talking about? So that is embedded in the fabric of the novel, all those questions. Talk a little bit about memoir and our fascination with that as as an art form. Yeah, I think, you know, it it goes up and down. Um, It hasn't always been as popular as it is now. And very early in this novel, I note, you know, that people have a hunger for memoir, but if they're the kind of readers who want, uh, you know, lots of dialogue and tremendous detail, you know, as I I think the narrator says, if you're the kind of person um, who likes those memoirs where someone is describing uh, her hash browns on the plate 38 years later, I think you might mistrust the author of that book. And in fact, we do see lots of memoirs that have page after page of dialogue and minute descriptions of people and things. In fact, that is not how memory works. So the memoirist is using the techniques of the journeyman conventional novel uh, to write about his or her own life. And yet we're fascinated by that. We love the idea somehow that people remember the proverbial hash browns on the plate. Yes, but it's funny how few people uh, think about what's actually going on. I think what happens when a person sits down to write about the past and to reproduce it um, as well as possible, um, the writer ends up filling in, creating details that, in fact, cannot be remembered. Um, It just starts to happen. It is actually a process of the imagination, right? So imagination and memory are very closely linked, and they're even very closely linked in the brain so that people who have damage to a little part of the brain called the hippocampus that's been linked to memory. Uh, Damage to that part of the brain creates memory loss. And in Alzheimer's, in fact, um, hippocampal damage is is part of it. Um, But those same people who have problems remembering have big problems imagining vividly. So both aspects are related. And for a long time, and throughout uh, uh, Western uh, philosophy, memory and imagination have indeed been linked. When people are confronted with that, do you think that that people are afraid (laughs) of that idea? Do you think they believe it? Do you think they're afraid of it? I think it is frightening. I think people... Uh, often, not all, but they like to think that we have um, 
a kind of storage area in the brain that keeps our memories intact. Um, this isn't, in fact, not at all how it works. And every time you retrieve a memory, it seems quite clear that that memory is subject to change. It's called reconsolidation in neuroscience. But I think many of us understand this intuitively as well because every time one sits down, say, at a family gathering around a dinner table and people begin to remember collectively, it becomes rather clear that people remember events in very different ways. Right. And of course, <laughs> and, and of course, those that tell the same stories over and over again have sort of set in stone their version of it, even if it has no relationship to reality whatsoever. Absolutely, I think, um, and that I think that function of language, you know, that a memory is then turned into a story, turned into a narrative, and that can be kept. And in remembered far more easily than those wispy uh, mental pictures that are, you know, part of our autobiographical memories. Tell us a little bit about the story you tell in, in Memories of the Future. Well, <laughs> it's a complicated one, but I can say that the um, the story was born from a simple idea which is that um, a person moves to an apartment and it's a New York City apartment with thin walls and she begins to hear her neighbor talking through the walls. And the mysterious content of these speeches is something that both scares and fascinates her. So that was the original impulse. That story is played out um, in the novel, but there are also several other um, uh, strings, if you will, that also keep recurring over the course of the book. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about some of the other themes that you've woven into this in terms of of gender roles, the sexism that was so prevalent at the time. Talk... Yeah, well, you know, I think this goes on. It's it's interesting because there is um, a sexual assault in, in the book. And uh, I had written that and was really near the very end of the book when the Me Too movement broke out, if you will, mm-hmm. in the press. So it was a kind of strange um, experience to go down and read the paper every morning before I went to work and feel that, I was being dogged by the the external world and the internal world were somehow meeting. Um, But I think this episode, and in relation to the Me Too movement, is important because what happens in memory is that you have a memory, even a very vivid one, say a traumatic memory that um, recurs and and, um, is frightening for people that as time goes on, the memory itself can take on different meanings in a different context. And if you think about Me Too, what happened for a lot of women was that they started thinking back on episodes in their own lives, uh, some of them traumatic, some of them much less so. But they took on a new meaning 
in the context of that particular movement, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. That the boundaries were redrawn by Me Too. So certain forms of molestation, for example, or you know, being pushed or kissed or grabbed that many, many women uh, have experienced, um, especially as young women, suddenly looked different. And they looked different because uh, they had become intolerable in a new context. And the feelings that accompanied that, you know, being pushed or shoved or grabbed, the pain was always there, I think. You know, the pain and humiliation was there, but it didn't have a frame around it. Does that make sense to you? Indeed. But it also raises the issue of how these events were remembered. I mean, we had a taste yes, of this. Yes, of course. We had a taste of this during, you know, Kavanaugh most recently, I suppose. Yes, and, yes. And it really combines these two ideas. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, in that case, what was astounding was, you know, penetrating, in a sense, the memories of both. Now, I came down very much on the side of Dr. Uh, Blasey Ford, I have to say. At the same time, it seemed entirely possible to me that he did not remember this event. Mm -hmm. And it's possible not only because of certain drunkenness, but also because it wasn't really important. And memory is consolidated by emotion. That we know. If you're indifferent about something, if it's just business as usual, if if it's part of your routine reality, you will forget it. It will not stay in your memory. So that you're absolutely right. I think that was a, a stunning case of of memory. I mean that that's the classic case of you know certain major events in your life or significant events I suppose you can remember from 50 years ago but it's pretty hard to remember what you had for lunch 2 days ago. <laughs> exactly, that's the perfect example. <laughs> we don't care about the lunch. In other words, the hash browns descriptions of hash browns are pretty likely to be invented. <laughs> <laughs> Siri Husved, her new novel is Memories of the Future. Siri, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.